Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. Hey, it's so good to have you with me today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. When recovering from abuse, there is this time where we begin to become aware of the fact that whatever it was that we experienced or lived through was wicked and that it was not God's design. But then there's also then this space of trying to determine what really is God's design. And one of the places we see this really played out right in front of us is in our churches. Trying to determine what is safe is even further complicated if you have experienced some kind of church hurt or abuse in a church context. I'm joined today by Dr. Scott McKnight, and Scott is here to talk with us about his book, A Church Called Tove, and what we can look for when we're trying to determine if a church is a safe place for us. Over the last several months, I've received several emails from women asking, where is the loneliness type quiz? And it is back. As single moms, loneliness is something we all have to deal with, but the reasons why we each deal with it are different and don't have that much to do with being in a relationship. To learn more about your experience with loneliness, what's causing it, and some of the ways out, start with our What's Your Loneliness Type quiz. And you'll find a link to that down in the show notes or by heading over to plusoneparents.org. One of the things that can be so challenging in a church context is finding a place to have your voice heard and finding people who will listen. And I appreciate that Scott discusses how in a truly good culture, what he calls a Tove culture, that even if we're talking with people who may not necessarily know exactly where we're coming from, that we should still find ourselves met with the compassion of Jesus. Here's my conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight. Scott, I'm so grateful to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, Michelle, I'm glad to be with you. It's good to be in Tennessee. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the good old South. Yeah. Scott, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today because when it comes to recovering from abuse, there is this experience of us starting to become aware of what we've been living in or what we've been experiencing and how it is not God's design. But then there's also sort of this other part that's up for grabs of of trying to determine then what is God's design? What is safe? What is healthy for me to be engaged in, whether that's a relationship or a church or community or those sorts of things. So I wanted to know if you would start us off with this understanding of the idea of Tove. This is something you talk about in your book, A Church Called Tove, and how this word really emphasizes God's attributes, but also His design for relationships and for the church? Well, Michelle, that's a good question. And um, I, I want to say that many many people experience, many people who've been abused experience what you just described as, let's say, a gradual enlightening awareness mm -hmm. of what they're actually going through. 
And they thought something was fairly normal. And it wasn't something they wanted to be talking about too much with other people because it was a little bit painful. And they could be afraid of having to unmask some of that, that pain. So they pretty much assume that things are, are normal. Uh, you know, in some categories, they call it homeostasis. It's keeping the situation the same. And many people who, let's say, grow up in totally dysfunctional families think that is normal. Yeah. They don't know that there are other families. I remember one time, one of my daughter's friends was at our house. And Chris and I were talking. We talked most of the evening that night. And she said, do your parents do this normally? She said, yes. And she says, well, my mom and dad never talk. He goes to his room and she goes to her room. So for her, that was normal. And our life was abnormal. So, yes, they don't, they, they in a sense, would say their marriage or their family situation is good. But when they see what the Bible means by tov and what goodness is, they, be, they begin to become aware and it can be very a very painful process of realization in which they need some safe places to talk and some people who have been through this experience to help them. And then they can become angry and even bitter and they need a place to vent. And so, but the Bible describes God as good and the Hebrew word is tov and it's a marvelous little word. And uh, I found that it has caught on with my students and people that we know. And God is good, and everything God does is tov. So in the Genesis chapter 1, everything that God creates is tov. And when he's done, it's tov ma'od, and that is very good. And then uh, God calls the people who are in covenant with him through Abraham and Moses, et cetera, and David as king, he calls the people to live a tov life. And tov is like a, a summary of the person who lives before God, the way God designed them to live. And there is, um, there is a, then uh, the process goes on of Jesus becoming the tov shepherd, who teaches that there are tov trees and there are raw trees or evil trees, and tov fruit grows on tov trees. And then the Apostle Paul, you know, he makes this famous statement, no one is tov, no, not one, but he is also the one who says that the fruit of the Spirit is tov. So tov needs to be defined as, uh, for us as humans, humans living in relationship to God and in relationship to one another and with ourselves in a way that reflects the beauty of what God uh, made us to be and called us to be and how to live. And I, and I really believe, Michelle, like our book uh, that I wrote with my daughter, Laura Berenger, that book has, we, we've received this comment very often, it gave me language for what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it was revealing in a, all of a sudden they thought, oh, that happened. I didn't even know it was happening. They had, they, there was what Wade Mullen says, there was something that was not right. That this, these categories at times that we present have given them words to describe their experience. So, so that awareness thing that you talk about, that's, that's really important.
Well, and I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that this starts though, sometimes very early on for us that we don't know that what we are involved in is not good or it's not that it's not tov. We don't know that. And that can start sometimes in our family of origins. Mm -hmm. That can start in childhood experiences that we're having, those sorts of things. And it gradually grows though. And I see this as how the enemy is after each one of us, that he is trying to steal tov from us, steal shalom from us, just as he did in the garden with this gradual deceit. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about God? You know, and it's these little lies that start to aggregate over the course of our lives. And as we are growing and going through these things, we then start to have a confusion about what it is that we really are in and what end is up. And we start to then also, though, I find have a tolerance that starts to be tested. And this is very much so what happens in the grooming process in an abusive relationship is that this person is gradually testing your tolerance, gradually pushing you off your boundaries, gradually pushing you more and more and more to accept what's unacceptable so that you don't even know that what what you're in until it's far too late. It's kind of that frog in the pot sort of example well, very much so yeah right and, right and that it is so true that i mean uh i was talking to a pastor of a, a woman pastor not too long ago who wanted a job and it was a dream job in a church and did not even realize what was going on at the emotional and psychological level of drawing her into a relationship uh, that would become over time abusive and um, overpowering, mm -hmm. uh, and it takes time. It, it it takes time to form those relationships. It takes time to become aware of them, and it takes time to get out of them. And the getting out is probably the hardest part. It takes a long time to get that. Let's say to get that person out of your brain who has been dominating your brain and so many women my wife's a psychologist so you know i hear stories so many women have gone through these experiences and and they have they they continue to suffer um, it's not like getting out of a bad relationship turns a person completely free it takes a while for that freedom to be discovered, and it's not discovered all at once, like all of a sudden you get to a point and it's all behind you. It's mostly behind you, but every now and then someone pops up in the rearview mirror, and it triggers and evokes and brings back painful memories. And so like, like the patriarch Jacob, a lot of times people who have been in these relationships will walk with a limp. And over time, they get to be pretty good with it. You know, uh, it's only occasional limp. Uh, I, I could, Chris and I walk every day, and most days I don't have any pains in my knees. And then all of a sudden, not too long ago, just an hour ago, I had a real crick in my right knee, and it took a while for it to work itself out. So yeah. it's that sort of thing. Yeah, and I've experienced that too. And and it's one of those things where. Just because you are out of an abusive relationship, for example, doesn't mean, though, that the abuse stops, that 
often it just takes shape. And so you're learning how to walk in this new freedom, but yet still feeling like there is this thing that is pulling you back. Mm. And on top of this, though, the, the degrees of freedom that you're able to walk in is something that is gradual also, as you mentioned, the, the pain in your knee and those sorts of things, but it's greatly influenced by the voices that are around us then in that vulnerable time. So where I was saying at the outset, you know, we may have an awareness that, okay, I have some words now, this thing was not good, this was not right, this was not holy, it was not okay what happened to me. But now you're in sort of this space though, where there's a lot of vulnerability to new ideas. Some of them are good and great and wonderful and they're the way we should go. And some of them are not. And they're ways Mm -hmm. that the enemy can try to suck us back in. And this is why I thought your comments on church culture were so pivotal because in my degrees of freedom, it has grown more and more and more because I have been in safe church context with safe people who have helped to validate where I have been at and to give me the next piece that I've needed or to give me just some encouragement or to let me know like, you're not crazy, <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. and to just to walk in step with you. And in your book, you mentioned though, that choosing a church, we're in that we're choosing a culture, but that culture mm-hmm. also has a great impact on us in that it has the ability to form and shape us. Mm-hmm. So, as far as that is concerned, can you talk more about, you know, when we're in this zone where we're trying to find a place that is safe, how the church culture itself really can impact our healing experience? Yeah. You know, so people people in abusive relationships have been systemically gaslit. They Their reality has been confused by these relationships. So they want... Abused and wounded people who love the Lord and who are struggling need to find a church that has a Tove culture. And I'm we're asked this question quite a bit. You know, there's no church that's perfect. So we want to look for signs of Tove in a church community because it will become embedded in the culture. So you will experience it in a way that you feel it and your emotions are there and you feel almost constrained by goodness in ways that you didn't know were possible. I think the marks of a Tove church are how they treat and speak of women, how they treat, let's say, Uh, the marginalized in our society, how they treat uh, single single moms, single women. Um, Those are marks always of of a culture that has formed in a direction of Tov. Um, You know, we often, people often say, you know, you, you can measure justice by how the least of these are being treated in our communities. And that's true. And my experience with pastors is the good pastors who are Tove, who help form Tove cultures in their churches, uh, are people who have a sensitivity to the homeless, to the poor, 
to the marginalized, to, you know, as your ministry is, to single moms. Look for signs of how people are spoken about, how people are treated, what kind of policies they have. You can look at the budget, how much money goes to the poor. Do they care about the poor in their own community? Or is it only the poor in Africa? I want to see what they're doing in the local community. Uh, So we care about the people in our community who are wounded. And I think that that's that's a mark of toe. When it comes to how a toe church impacts its wounded, so for example, if I was to walk into a brand new church, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm just trying to figure out, are these safe people? You know, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Do you think there are things like right at the outset that can be really obvious? Well, yes, Michelle. Uh, the problem is really good salespeople make things look really good from the start, too. So I, I would be looking for patterns, policies, programs. Um, let's say you're a wounded, abused woman. Let's say you're, uh, if you're a single mother and the church has 32 people in it, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to see some things that you would want to see. There won't be probably as many in that situation. But if you go to a fairly substantial church, you will find out, do they have ministries for single moms? Do they have programs that allow these women? In other words, is this a safe place because they, uh, single moms, single women, the wounded can find people like them. You know, Mm -hmm. churches, bigger churches have uh, programs for people struggling with alcohol, people struggling with pornography, people struggling with economic, you know, gambling or something like that. And they, they try to make it a safe place for those people to find some healing. Then I think you look for stories of people who've been in this church who can say, this church has been very healing for me. You know, you may find out it's not as perfect as it sure. as you think it is, but I would be looking for marks of people who are he- being healed. What do you think are marks on the opposite side, Scott? Things that are very obvious to you, perhaps, but maybe, like you said, there's some great salespeople out there. We might think yeah. like, oh, this looks pretty impressive. Like, this looks like a place I want to be, but... <laughs> well, okay, now this is the problem. Yeah. Is the problem is... Uh, Caitlin Beatty, a, w- a wonderful writer, um, has a book called Celebrities for Jesus, I think it's called. Yeah, I got it right there. And he, here's the one thing I would say. The narcissistic, most dangerous churches, the most unsafe places, are the most impressive on Sunday morning from 11 to 12. Because they have mastered the performance on the platform. They know how to do it. When you come in you feel like, whoa, everybody here loves me. Well, you know, they don't love you because they don't even know you. Mm. So it takes time to find out. Okay, so I would say don't go on first impressions. Uh, dig around a little bit. And the, mar- the, the hardest things to see about a really toxic place are the things that happen behind closed doors and that are only seen by people who are inside those rooms who are in close proximity and in the inner circle of the toxic leaders of the church. So look at how many people are being released. Uh, Look at how many people have stories to tell about signing NDAs. Uh, All these are marks and signs of toxicity in Mm -hmm. a church. 
transparency and glass doors. I don't mean that physically, but that's not a bad idea. <laughs> are really good signs of of um, of Tove. I appreciate what you're pointing out here, though, too, is that it does take some time and some investigation. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah. I think some of what you just said is great dating advice, too. <laughs> you just need to like take your time. They yeah. might not be the best place, might not be the most impressive right off the bat, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> some of that glitz is trying to cover up some stuff that's yeah. otherwise undesirable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get real for a second. Have you ever just looked around at your life and thought, is this really all that there is? I know I have. But what if God actually agrees with us? Plus One Parents has released a brand new Bible study experience called Made for More, 30 Days of Discovering God's Redemption in Your Disappointment. In this study, you'll have a look at the scriptures and what they tell us about where God is in our disappointment, what He is doing to draw near to us even when we have doubt and exactly what he is doing to redeem every last piece of our stories, even the mistakes. Made for More is now available, and it's part of the Plus One Parents Collective all-access membership level, which you'll find a link to down in the show notes. What you see around you in life right now is not all that there is. You were made for more. When it comes to the narcissistic leader, perhaps, though, there is, in your book, there's a specific mention of The fact that fear is very often something that they are using might even be more more noticeable from some of their messaging, maybe even interviews they give or things like that. Um, And the fact that also, though, in their acquisition of power, where we're talking about culture forming us, that power is actually then deforming the brain of this person. So can you give us some insight into mm. narcissistic leadership and how fear and power and all these things are exchanged? Well, this is complex and I'm not a psychologist, but we we have some things about it and I've learned some things from my wife and what we've read. But narcissistic people are into themselves, okay? They want to enhance themselves. They have very fragile egos they when they get mad they blow up most of them uh turn into a rage some have learned to manage their narcissistic rage with quiet seething but it'll 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 boil over it'll eventually seep outside the bowl and um they use they have power because narcissistic people get power that's what they want And they use threatening fears to keep people in line and they get rid of people who don't, who don't follow the line, who don't stand inside the circle with utter loyalty. And these are, I think these are also really hard to find. You need to find people who know, who are are willing to tell the truth. If they say anything that makes you think they're afraid to talk, you got a toxic leader on your Mm -hmm. hand. Um, is that there is a there is a place where Christians should be able to be honest with one another and say he can sometimes get mad, but he admits it and he will apologize and he's working on it and he's seeing a therapist. Others will say, I just can't talk about that right now. Or they, you know, this is where it's difficult, Michelle. They tell you everything is great. Yeah. Because they know better than to say it's not perfect, and that's that's where it gets that's where it gets danger. I mean, watch mm-hmm. how 
people relate to them. Watch. You can almost always, if you're close enough, you can find the leaders of a church, the narcissistic leader, in a situation that irritates and mm. watch the people around them. Are they all gathering around to try to calm them down? Well, that's a sign that their job at the church is to soothe his ego and to keep him from getting upset and to please him, pleasure him, keep him in a happy zone. And that is not good. That's unhealthy. Mm. Now, Scott, when it comes to allegations and things like that that may come up you know even if we have something that we feel like we want to bring forward in a church how we are met can also tell us a lot about the church culture can tell us sometimes this might be Mm. the first thing too like we may Mm -hmm. be stepping into a new church and be sharing some things about ourselves maybe we don't want to but we're trying to find some place that feels safe or trying to find people who can help us or people who can have compassion that maybe are going through similar things or, or that sort of thing. Can you talk about truth and how a, a a toxic culture and how a Tove culture each handle the truth? The first thing is the most important thing. The first response is, is going to be a revelation of what's going to happen because the first response opens a door into a room in which they're going to process what happens. And when Willow Creek's story broke open in the Chicago Tribune, and my daughter and her husband were deeply involved at Willow Creek, they had been, they were no longer as, um, my daughter, Laura said to me, you know, what's gonna happen? I said, I said, if Willow Creek doubles down, they're go- it's gonna get bad. And then more people are going to come forward, and then they're going to double down, and then more people are going to come down, and eventually people are going to realize this place had all kinds of things going on behind closed doors, and we did not know. And then it's a culture of deceit. It's perceived as deceit. If they respond the way Robert Cunningham responded at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, and I don't know exactly where this is. This is a story that my daughter dug up. Um, but I'd since found out that other people knew about this story and I didn't. Um, they said when the story was broke and it wasn't about him, it was about the former pastor or some former situation. He said, you can have access to everything, every record, every di- whatever, whatever you need. It's here for you. We want you to find the truth. So that that is one mark right there is the first response is important. The second thing is, is there a policy in place? for whistleblowers that is safe and that will lead to a safe place for them to tell their story where there can be an independent investigation that actually is not, let's say, in cahoots with the leaders so that Mm -hmm. the leaders can basically determine the shape of that investigation and therefore determine its result. So I I would say... um, I would say look for, I mean, the first response is so important. The second one is, is there actually, is there actually a policy in place that is safe for people to report? Is there a whistleblower? You know, do you know how many churches, I'm talking about big churches, actually have whistleblower policies? Very, very few. Now, a lot of the big denominations, the mainline denominations, from my understanding, 
I don't know about the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church on this, have whistleblower policies where things go to someone and it's completely safe for a person to tell their story. Uh, eventually, maybe the perpetrators or the accused will figure out who it is who's making the report. But by and large, uh, churches that don't have policies like that don't want policies like that mm. because they can't control the narrative and the outcome. I think a lot of women find what you're saying to be true and find it to be a huge problem that there is not always a very clear-cut, straightforward structure by which someone can make a report. And whether that is, again, something that happened within the church or something that's happening at home and how I can get support to have this really looked into, there, there is a huge gap in our churches when it comes to being able to, to find that support and find that accountability. I think that's the biggest piece that what you're what you're talking about in a tov culture is not just that there's transparency not just that there's this ability to open everything up and go ahead and have a look and show what needs to be seen but then there's a commitment to accountability in that where that if there is wrongdoing that it's going to be addressed it's not going to be swept under the rug and i think a lot of times for women what will happen in a context where they're having trouble at home is that they may be referred to counseling or something like that that seems to be what you would do for a couple who is not not getting along but at the end of the day the counseling is not able to hold any kind of accountability to if there is a, a man who's perpetrating abuse at home. And so it seems that in, in, in the midst of this, one part of it is having a structure by which you feel safe enough to actually go and speak and step forward. But then to know that there is some teeth behind that, that there will be some accountability and some consequences and those sorts of things uh, to ensure that some action is taken on behalf of the person who's being harmed. That's so true. Now, the people who come forward in a safe whistleblower policy still are not safe because 90% of a church is going to defend the pastor at the instinct level. Now, that's not the worst thing in the world in this sense that is, it shows that a lot of people trust their pastors, which is, you know, I teach pastors and I want them to be trusted. I want them to be so told that they're trustable. Trustworthy. Okay, so, but it's still not safe. We need, let me put it this way, we need trauma-informed people helping us form trauma-informed policies. And the only way those are going to happen is for the people in power to listen to the traumatized. It's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, if you are... Let's just say that you um, you experience abuse in your home. You experience abuse at work. Uh, a traumatized person will be able to articulate safe the safeguards and safety lines of behavior that the people in power do not know anything about frequently. They just don't. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a ton in my classes at Northern Seminary. We have... Um, we have a lot of women in our classes. We have a lot of women who've been abused in their life. And they can call out abusive language, 
unsafe language, triggering language that people who are speaking and teaching have absolutely no perception that it was triggering or abusive. Yeah. It deeply wounded, you know, it re-wounded people. I listened to Phil Monroe last night say, I think there's a, there's a pretty standard observation now that it is far more wounding to the wounded when the church begins to deal with things than when the than the original wound mm. is that they re-wound people over and over. The Willow Creek survivors who came forward had to tell their story to like elders and other people three and four times. And in my opinion, nothing really happened on their behalf to where they were platformed as truth tellers and grateful that they told the truth and sorry that we didn't treat you the way we should have. None of that, that, that just didn't happen. The apology that they gave was thin. So we apologize for them. We apologize for Willow in our Tove book, just to make it clear that this is what an apology looks like. They didn't do that. I appreciate you saying, though, the fact that survivors often have then a sensitivity. I think oh. it is sort of the superpower, you know, of, of, that comes out of just horror is being yeah. able to sniff it out. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things for a lot of women who have done the healing work and have done so much. A lot of times they've had to do it relatively on their own, or they've had to seek it out on their own. And then desiring very much to want to re reach back into their churches and reach back into these communities and say, I see things, I want to help. I'm aware of these things. Do you know these things exist? And so often it seems at best, that perhaps what you're met with is this idea that, well, we're really glad to know that you have a heart for this and we'll keep that like in our, <laughs> we'll keep that in our back pocket or that, yeah. you know, it, it seems to be something that um, often churches, I've, and I've heard this from pastors that because they're not hearing about it, they don't perceive that it's that big of a problem. But as you said, you're seeing women all the time who have abuse in their backgrounds. And statistically speaking, if one in three to one in four women are experiencing some kind of abuse in their lifetimes, statistically speaking, it's, it is in your church. It's happening there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. so oh, yeah. it's, it seems even then to amongst, you know, well-meaning pastors still to have a low priority order sometimes because it just does not appear to be that prevalent. But often because if the victim knows there is no safety structure for me, if I speak up, I risk being more vulnerable. I risk this person coming after me then better for me to just keep it all quiet. Well, why can't why can't uh, the leaders, the elders or the pastors of a church advertise? We want to we want to develop some trauma informed policies. Uh, we're going to gather. Uh, we want to initiate conversations with traumatized people in our church. Here's a safe number that you can contact. And we will begin to have conversations with you to for you to look over our policies, to look over. Uh, it's the only way it's going to happen, Michelle. It's yeah. not going to happen because someone read a book. You mm -hmm. know, it's it's more organic. Yeah. If someone perceives it at, you just said something that in our church is going to hurt this whole segment of people. And you didn't know it. I know you didn't intend to do anything mean. But the impact was painful. Yeah. So, I mean, I've done this. I've spoken in classes, but I've spoken at churches where 
between, you know, some of them have three and four services, uh, they'll say, uh, we don't want you to say that in the next service. Or students will come up to me and said, you know, you used so-and-so as an illustration, but he's he has a really bad memory for me. You know, one of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century was a man named Karl Barth. Karl Barth basically was a bigamist who lived with his secretary, who lived in his house. She moved in. And it, it was, you know, almost everybody admits it was bigamy. Um, although he had basically shut down his, his, his wife. So I have students who ask that we not read Karl Barth. And I'm sensitive to that. So I think, I think we need, I think we need to listen to the traumatized. Yeah, I appreciate that. Scott, for a person who is feeling like they do want to speak up, <laughs> you know, that they, I love that you said that this is kind of an organic thing. This does have to be somewhat grassroots. You know, are there ways that a person can prepare what they are trying to say in a way that can open up more dialogue? I think they need to find safety, okay, a safe place. They need to have realistic goals, for instance, uh, that they were heard rather than that things changed. You can't change things if you don't have power. Uh, and that's something we're working on. And I would say they need to find, let's just say they have a therapist that they can be safe with. Therapists are safe. If they're not, you know, they don't last and they should be fired. Okay, then we uh, then they can find try to find a safe place in the church where you know you can talk and be heard, and then begin to find wisdom from such people as to how best to move forward in that organic situation. Because it could be, if you talk to the wrong person, you're going to get you're going to get yourself in hot water. So I would say gently, quietly, safely begin to open up about some of your story and see how it goes. And then eventually uh, you might be able to find someone who can get at the table and say, uh, this pastor was abusive to me or this situation was unacceptable and I would like you to be aware of it. And if they say, thank you, you know, you met, you're going to have to discern, are they just getting rid of me or are they actually listening? And over time, you're going to be able to see whether they're actually listening because they'll begin to adjust policies. So I, I would say gently and slowly move forward in a vulnerable way to, but always keep yourself safe. But I also always emphasize uh, to have realistic expectations. Asking a narcissistic pastor to change, you know, is like a leopard losing its spots, you know, a biblical image. It's not going to happen. So so don't expect that to be the re result of what you're going to do. But you want to be heard. Did they hear me? And how long am I willing to wait till I begin to see changes? And I'd say, set up a really clear schedule for yourself. I'm going to give this church one year 
and I'm going to schedule six meetings every other month, and I'm going to see if I can uh, make any inroads. And if I can't, well, then I'm going to have to move on. Mm-hmm. And I find that that moving on part is sometimes the power that we do have. So you're right. You know, we have to have expectations that sometimes we're not going to be able to change the context that we're dealing with. But that doesn't mean that we've lost that That's in right. in moving on. That is not a defeat. That is a it takes strength to do that. And there's power in that, that. God will work through that to benefit and bless us and the people that he is moving us into and and with. But that unfortunately, it may be that 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 is truly what needs to happen in setting boundaries with an organization that we may love dearly. We may have lots of great memories there, lots of great friends there, but it may inevitably be something that is irreparably broken. And the longer we stay, the longer we're harmed. Yep, yep. Scott, one thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to have you cap off for us is the fact that Tove Cultures would promote a flourishing of women. Can you talk more to specifically the way that a Tove culture appreciates values and um, raises up women in the congregation? The most toxic cultures are male-driven cultures shaped for men and have a masculinist feel about them all, all the way through. The Tovist cultures are cultures that love all people, that welcome the marginalized, that are sensitive to the wounded, that recognize that God made humans as men, and male and female, men and women, and both are made in the image of God. And I find that the Tove cultures, a truly Tove culture, uh, creates a, and nurtures a culture where women flourish. If women feel suppressed, silenced, quarantined, categorized, labeled, then they are, then it's not a, a Tove culture. It's a toxic culture. It's masculinist, it's male dominated, and it will not, it is, it will not allow women to flourish in their gifts. I know that's true. I love that too, because I think that is the depiction that as we talked about, you know, God's design, that was God's design for men and women from the beginning, that we have these gifts and we have places to flourish with them and with each other. And that if we are truly in a safe place that is pursuing God's design, that we will see that emphasized, not just like, oh, it's something we have this thing on the side, you know, <laughs> that is something that's mm-hmm. really emphasized in part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Scott, I appreciate all of the insight that you've shared in this conversation. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? Well, I don't know if this will make the final cut. <laughs> uh, do what you can do and maintain your health. There are so many expectations, so many hopes, so many things that can be done that a single mother in many situations can't accomplish. And they can't live with guilt that uh, I didn't, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. You do do what you can. Do what you can do and don't feel guilty about what you what you can't do and what your what your body 
and what your health will not permit you to do. That'll make the final cut, Scott. That was great. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Scott, would you tell listeners about the book, where they can find it and how they can keep up with you? Yes. Uh, the book is called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And it is uh, Scott McKnight's the author. Laura Berenger is the co-author and a foreword by Tish Harrison Warren, who's a wonderful um, pastor. And uh, you can buy this at your local bookstores. No, if you have brick and mortar stores near you, um, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, there's a lot of digital frameworks for people to to buy books. Um, And, you know, we always say, make sure that the elders in your church get a copy. Mm. So we we love it when, when the leaders in a church are reading it together. Yeah. And I think that this is something even, I think, holistically for churches to understand that this is the direction, this is what God designed for His communities is so important. And I will include yeah. links in the show notes to make it easier for listeners to find it. But thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be with you. I'm honored to be with you. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. McKnight, I've got a couple of others I can suggest for you. Check out episode 112, Decoding the Narcissist, Exposing the Faces of Narcissism to Find Freedom from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse with Chuck DeGroat. Also, check out episode 105, Am I Safe? Experiencing Physical, Emotional, and Spiritual Security After Abuse with Sarah McDougall. I'd love to invite you to get more involved with the Plus One Parents community. If you head over to plusoneparents.org, you can sign up to become part of our free private community experience, the Plus One Parents Collective. On the website, you can also check out our blog and other resources on topics relating to dating and parenting, abuse recovery, and spiritual well-being. Or you can also get on our mailing list to receive Plus One Parent exclusive updates. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at plusone.parents. I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you were able to join me for this episode today. I pray always that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.